0: All right, Oh, it's great to see uh, some young people in here. And by young, I mean you were born in the 2000s, right? That's uh, a lot of our youth kids, where they missed our entire century. Uh, I'm sure they're thrilled to see me. I had a chance to speak uh, at the youth service a couple weeks ago, and I think I put every single one of them to sleep. So they're like, oh, it's him again. <laughs> All right, I'll try a little harder, you guys. Uh, look, uh, you know, a lot has been made about last words, right, the, the, the last words that people say. Uh, you could Google famous last words and you'll find countless number of articles about all the great, insightful, sometimes comical, sometimes really sad things that people have uh, said as they're leaving uh, this world. Uh, I thought what was very interesting is you guys, uh, quick, high school kids, you guys, who's Leonardo da Vinci? Yeah, one of the teenage mutant. Uh, he he was a painter, probably most famous for painting? The Mona Lisa, right? Second, maybe most famous painting? The Last Supper, right? Uh, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, done a, he's done a little bit more than paint, though, and what's crazy is, After he's accomplished everything, his last words would have been widely attributed to him was this, quote, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I thought that was, kind of struck me a lot coming from a guy like Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, people travel, spend a lot of money to fly to, where is it, the Louvre in Paris to see that one little piece of work, and yet he was quoted as saying, I've offended God and mankind because the quality of my work did not live up to what it should have been. I thought that's very interesting. You know, often you, you do find people towards the end of their lives being very reflective on what they've done, how they've done it, uh, how, the, how their time and energy was spent. And the reason why I shared this with you guys is because in Joshua chapter 23, I don't know if you realize this, but this is at the end of Joshua's life. All right. These are, in a way, his last words. And if you look at verse 1, we see the setting here. The setting of, of what we just read was that this, this, this happened a long time afterward where there had been a lot of peace in the land. So we are pretty far removed from all of our past sermons on Jericho and Ai and the battle at uh, Gibeon and all the different things that and the conquests and the things that they were going through. They've had a, 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 a good period of peace in the land. Not only that, but we see that Joshua was now old and well advanced in years All right, and in verse two we see that at this particular moment in his life, as he's near, as as maybe he thinks he's nearing the end or, or whatever it is, he summons all the leaders of Israel. All right, it's elders, its heads, its judges and officers. In a way, this is like a leadership conference or a leadership meeting. He's gathering the people who you know, who are going to be called to kind of keep going and taking the next steps with the people here in Canaan, in the Promised land. And he begins by saying, I am now old and well advanced in years. And what we're going to look at now in the next few minutes, all right, so I'm going to kind of try to capture your attention and summarize what we're about to do. He's going to give a very important speech to the leadership here. It's really important. And the main thing he's going to leave them with is this command, exhortation, encouragement, whatever you want to say, for the leaders of Israel and pretty much for the whole nation, right, to love the Lord your God. That's going to be really the main point, to love the Lord your God. But, you know, as a pastor, one of the things I often got asked most about was about this very topic of loving God. I, you know, a lot of times we just don't feel like we're in love with God. A lot of times we're not sure what it means to love God or how to love God or how can I f- be, be, be more in love? How can I return maybe to that first love I used to have? Those are the questions I, I, I get sort of asked a lot as a pastor and I'll say this, I think Joshua has a lot to say about that topic. And I think when, when, when we look at these few verses together, I think we'll learn a little bit about what Joshua was talking about as he describes how and what it means, uh, how to love God and what that means, all right? So that's gonna be what we're looking at first, okay? The first thing he, 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 he um, uh, when we talk about love, um, a lot of times, love is such a big part of our language, such a big part of the things we listen to, watch, and read, right, our song lyrics, our movies and TV shows and our books. Love, is, love plays such a prominent role that it's something we're very accustomed to. The topic of love is not new for any one of us. The questions and the topics of love have been something that writers and artists have been trying to talk about and sing about for generations. And so I'm not introducing something new when I talk about love. The thing is, though, sometimes we have come to a very one-sided understanding of love. It's a very subjective view. Uh, One of the privileges I have as a pastor is I get to officiate weddings. It's a great joy uh, to take two people who are in love and and talk to them about marriage and talk to them about love and and help them to really see what the Bible says and explains to us about those things. And uh, the first meeting with them, I always, you know, I'll give them a, a piece of paper I'm kind of giving it away for a couple couples in here that, uh, oh, well, don't prepare, right? Just show up. Uh, And I'll just ask them, hey, right, what is, you know, why are you getting married? Why do you want to marry, you know, your spouse? And I'll say, don't talk out loud, just write it down. And usually the guy is done in 10 seconds, you know, and 99% of the time it's the same answer. Whereas the girl, the female, the woman is usually, Right? And there's this struggle, why am I getting married, right? What is it, why, what is this, what am I doing? Um, but I, no, I'm just kidding, I don't think it's that. I think there's a, a desire to more, maybe poetically understand love and marriage and maybe kind of there's a more deeper understanding there but whereas guys were just kinda of like, I just want this class to be done. Uh, I'm getting married because I love her. Right? That's usually 99% of the time what guys write down. So when they write that, I usually ask, well, what is, you know, how do you know you love her? What does it mean to love her? How do you know you're in love? And I think that's an interesting question. We tend to think of love in this subjective way as some kind of state of being. It's an emotion we have, or an emotion we feel. It's kind of a place that uh, we get put into, right? Uh, we have trouble thinking straight, or the world seems to spin, or we're happier, or whatever. It's a subjective description of love. And that's one, I think, extreme way of understanding love. And then there's the other extreme way of understanding love, and it's love as purely an action. There's no heart or emotions, or there's no, nothing subjective about it. It's just simply love is what you do, how you act, All right, and things like that. Well, I I think loving God is going to involve both, right? It it does involve a state of being and it does involve our heart, but it also involves actions, all right? And those are the things we're going to look at today. Uh, In verse 3, the first thing that Joshua asks his leaders to do is this He says, Look, as you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. So he's basically asking them to remember the things that they've seen. They were eyewitnesses to some pretty incredible uh, miracles, and, right, the, the fall of Jericho, the walls of Jericho. They walked around the city f- for seven days. They blew the trumpets, and the walls fell down. They were witnesses to uh, the great victory at Gibeon with the hailstorm, and, and whatever it is exactly that happened with the sun that day, whether it stopped, and, and, and literally that great physical uh, uh, miracle of, of what God did on, on that day. And so, you know, God is pointing them to this reality of, look, you yourselves have been witnesses of God's faithfulness. And the fact that you are here today in the promised land makes you a witness of this very important truth. God has fulfilled his promises to you. He didn't make a promise and then failed to keep it. Right? He didn't say something one day and then the next, uh, uh, you know, decade say, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm going to do something different. Although he could have said, look, you guys are not faithful to me at all. So you're not going to get what I said I would give to you. You don't deserve it. He could have said that. And no one could have accused him of being an un- unloving or unjust God. The fact that Joshua asked the leaders to look back at the crossing of the Jordan, the fall of Jericho, the great victory through the hailstorm at Gibeon. All of this serves to remind them of the character of God, the person of God, the victory that God gave them. It was this idea that when you look back, what you don't see is yourself accomplishing all these things. What you don't see is yourself overcoming all of these things. What you see is in fact God granting you victory. In fact, when you look at verses 9 and 10, you'll see this that the Lord was the one who drove them out before you, and he drove out great and strong nations. No one has been able to stand before you. Verse 11, even, or verse 10, even talks about this very interesting kind of comparison one man of you puts to flight a thousand. It's kind of like saying one of you is like a thousand of them. But when we, are, when we objectively look at the history and the place and the city-states that were there, here's the objective thing. The city-states that were in Canaan were way more powerful, were way more established, and if you were a betting person, the odds were in the favor of these city-states who existed there. The odds were not in the favor of this almost ragtag group of people who left Egypt and went through the wilderness for years, and then finally arrived at the footstep of Canaan and crossed the Jordan. In fact, when you look at Exodus 12, what we see is when the Israelites left Egypt, they left in such a haste and in such a hurry, the Bible specifically describes that they didn't even have time for their bread to rise. And that would later then become uh, described as the bread of affliction. This bread of affliction, the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is just bread without leaven. And leaven was the yeast. That's what would cause the, the bread to rise. But that takes time. If you bake, you know all these things. I know that not because I bake, but because I did research. And they laughed in such a hurry and fear and they were chased. And the thing is, when you look at Scripture carefully, they were outnumbered, they were outmanned, their cities had great walls, they had no siege equipment. They had chariots. And chariots to a foot army is like facing a tank with your gun. And yet, every single time they went and faced these kinds of odds and fought in these battles, what would happen? It was like one of them was making a thousand of them run. Why? Verse 10, one simple fact. One simple truth. It was your God who fights for you. Your God who fights for you. The the, the God of the universe, the creator, the all-powerful God, and the God who makes a promise to you to give you that promised land. This God fights for you. The idea is, if such a God would be on our side, this all-powerful and promise-keeping, faithful God is for you, then the question stands and remains, and it's forever, who can stand against you then if that kind of God is on your side? It reminds us of what Paul writes in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, Who can be against us? You know, if you think about this for a moment, you may think, of course it's so easy for the Israelites to look back and remember the faithfulness of God. If I saw the city walls of Jericho fall, I would have no problems looking back and remembering his faithfulness. If I saw the hail storm, if I saw the sun stop in the sky, I would not have a problem remembering the faithfulness of God. Well, remember what we said in verse 1. Many years had passed. There had been peace in the land. There, they were in a, a situation where things were going great. And for them, it's like us. We're like this all the time. Maybe when things are are difficult or we're going through trials or we're going through temptations or we're going through some struggles, we tend to turn to the Lord because he is our source of hope and strength. And so we'll remember him. We'll remember his faithfulness. We'll remember his promises. Or if we don't, we'll at least open up the Bible and try to find a reminder of his promises and his faithfulness. But when things are going well, when there's an absence of trials, when there's an absence of suffering, an absence of pain, an absence of disappointment, and your life is going exactly the way you think it should be going, this is when it's difficult to look back and to remember the faithfulness of God, to remember that it was God who fought for you, and it is God who fights for you, because we are a proudful people, We tend to think, in fact, the reason why we're at church and the reason why we give our tithes and the reason why we join our Love Our Neighbor campaign or do the mission trips or give off, all of these things is because of the goodness that exists in us. I'm a good person. And so I can follow God. I've done this, Lord, for you. When I think scripture reminds us, even our faith and our love for him is generated by God himself and not us. So I think the first thing that Joshua would say is that if you're struggling to love God or you're struggling to feel in love with God, what you are failing to do is remembering and looking back upon the faithfulness of God. You're not trusting in the God who's already died on the cross for you and I. You're not looking at that. We also see a very um, important reminder, starting in verse 6, that loving God, I think, and Joshua, I think, would say this, is about obeying God. It's the same thing that Jesus says in John fourteen, fifteen: If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember this, all right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, in verse 6, Joshua tells the leaders, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. That word to keep, that's just not, that doesn't mean just hold it somewhere. That doesn't mean to just put it away somewhere in your heart or in your room so you can remember uh, what that commandment is or what was written. To keep it means to observe it, to not only have it, but to obey it. And Joshua leaves this as a reminder for Israelites, not because God is a God who is boring, God is a God who wants us to suffer, or God wants pain in our lives, or he wants us to you know, experience terrible things. He's not some kind of mean, unloving, unkind, and unjust God in heaven. He wants us to obey his laws because, look, think about this, he is our creator, He knows for what purpose he's created us for, right? He understands that. He knows the the, the way of life that would be the best for us and the way of life that would bring us the most joy. He's a loving God. We've seen that. If you doubt that he's a loving God, then you need to do what Joshua talked about first. Look back and remember. Think about the cross. His one and only begotten son dying for you taking your place on the cross. But if you remember that he's a God of love, then you should also want to keep his commandments. One of the things that was funny for me growing up was that for whatever reason, my dad was deathly afraid of me crossing the street by myself. It was like, I almost wanna say his greatest fear in life was that I'd be crossing the street and get hit by a car and die. I think it's from watching Korean dramas. That's, it's like a guaranteed thing that will happen in a Korean TV show or movie. Someone at the worst possible time will get hit by a car. And for some reason my dad had such a great fear of this and he would insist whenever you cross the street you have to be really careful, you have to look both ways, you have to give enough time, you have to make sure there's enough room, you have to try and calculate the speed upon which the car is coming and make sure you can safely cross and if you're not sure play it safe and don't cross there's always going to be another chance. So I grew up with some kind of disease where I could not cross the street. I was like <laughs> <laughs> But in reality, of course, he was thinking of my well-being, wasn't he? And you know, when when we're young as young boys, I think he particularly saw it in me. I think I, I in a way I felt like I was invincible and I would try jumping off all kinds of things with my bike, and, you know, I never thought about getting hurt. It wasn't something that entered my thought that we were finite beings. I didn't live like that as a child, but, you know, as a parent, he understood that there could be this dangerous thing, and he kept trying to instill some things in my mind. Okay, all I'm trying to say is this. God's laws are for us, not for him. Do you really think that God gains something when we obey him? Like, all of a sudden, God now is fulfilled because we obeyed his laws? That would be a really poor understanding of God. One of the things we learn in seminary is that there's this thing called the asaity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, and the aseity of God is a simple concept that God, if he is God, is so perfect And so complete, he does not need anything to make him more perfect or more complete. So he does not need us to obey him for him to realize, okay, now I'm God. He's God before that. Perfect and complete. He wants us to obey him because it's better for us. There's a famous quote, so famous, I have no idea who said it. The first task of every man is not to find its freedom, but its master. That's kind of stuck with me, because I grew up thinking what would make me happy is finding my freedom. But I guess I'm in the process of discovering this. It's not about that, it's about discovering who my master is. The one who created me, what his purpose was for me, or is for me, and the commandments that he gives to me for my benefit. And then we get to this thing that has been a little bit confusing over time and for some. Starting in verse seven, he almost seems to give this really strange rule about interracial marriage, or maybe that's what it looks like on the surface, and we'll talk a little bit about this. Right? He says, you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. If you jump down to verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you. So what is God saying here? All right, first of all, let's eliminate the incorrect understanding of this. God is not a racist God. God is not saying interracial marriages are wrong. That would be pure ridiculousness. Even when the Israelites left Egypt, did you know that they were not this one pure race of people who left the bondage and the slavery of Egypt? Exodus 12, verse 38, makes it clear that the people who were saved was a mixed multitude. They weren't just Jewish people by race. They weren't just the descendants of Abraham, but there were others that were allowed to leave with the Israelites. They also were delivered. They also were saved. The people who were saved from all those plagues and through the plagues, I mean, the Exodus, the great deliverance, it wasn't just one single race of people. Even Moses, the great leader himself, who led the Israelites through the Exodus and into the wilderness, he himself married a foreigner, an interracial marriage. Even when we looked at Joshua, we saw Rahab, a foreigner, an outsider, coming to salvation. And in fact, she is remembered forever in Scripture for her faith. God is not racist, nor is he against interracial marriages, but he is warning the Israelites of something very important here, and I think it's important for us to understand it also. One of the big issues facing people of that time and in that place was this. You're heavily dependent upon raising your crops harvesting the crops, and having food to eat. And that all, I mean, you could only do so much. At the end of the day, everything depended upon what? Was there going to be rain? In a simple way, a lot of rain equaled life. Drought equaled death. So you could work your whole life at becoming the master farmer and the master harvester, but if there were, if, if there were to be a period of drought, you would die. It was as simple as that. And so, the, in a way, the most important question for someone who lived back then was, who was the God who was in charge of bringing the rain? This was the argument that people had back then. My God is the bringer of rain. No, your God is fake. My God is the one who brings the rain. No, 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 your God is just a piece of wood. My God is the one who brings the rain. There was a great polemic, and it was a matter of life and death. It wasn't politics. It wasn't religious discussions and conversations and arguments. It wasn't talking about gray matters. Is infant baptism okay? No, believers, whatever. It wasn't none of these things. It was a matter of life and death. Who is the God who brings the rain? The people of Canaan had a very strong belief in a, in, in a God called Baal, the God of the storms. And there was a whole ritual that the Baal God had to go through And so you had Asherah poles and you had all of these things and fertility rituals so that the rain would eventually come. And if there was a drought in the land, you would cry out, you would cut yourself, you would do all kinds of heinous things. You would even sacrifice babies to bring the rain. And then you had the Israelites. And the group of people who left Egypt, and they had been taught for generation after generation that there was a God who said, Let there be light, and there was light. And that same God can say, Let there be rain, and there's rain. That creator, Yahweh God, our Lord, is the one who is in control of all things. So for God, he had to look at his people and he had to say, you must guard yourself against all of these false truths or false, oh, false truths, what is that? False lies. (laughs) You have to guard your heart against all of these religions and gods and numerous things because so many people just were clueless and they had given up and they said, I don't know which God is the God of the rains. I'm gonna pray to all of them. And their heart and their lives were a complete religious mess, willing to sell their hearts out to any God who would make even the simplest claim to be able to bring the rain. And into that mist, the Israelites had now entered, and God was saying, you have to guard yourselves from those things because loving me is about having only me as your God. I am the only one true God. All of these other gods are not gods. I am the only one. And to protect against that, he warned against the marriages and the mixing because he knew that the minute the Israelites did that, instead of teaching them about the one true God, that they would become just like them after one generation even. And if you look at the period of Israel through the time of the judges and through the time of the kings, that's exactly what happened. They adopted all of these crazy things and practices and rituals, and they started building high places to false gods, even one generation after Jericho. Crazy. For us today, you know what, we don't have the same question as to who brings the rain. But for us it's a question of who brings true joy. Who has the true right purpose of why we're on this earth and why we're here and what we're living for? Are we here for our pleasure and does that pleasure come through wealth? Is it is it uh, material is it the the philosophy of materialism that's correct? The more you have, the happier you'll be. Is it the idea of hedonism, the more more joys or uh, temporary things of happiness you engage in? more complete you'll be and the more happy you'll be and the more uh, meaning you'll get out of life. Is it about more power? Is it about more success? Is it about making your family the ultimate God? If I have this perfect family, the right number of children, and my children are like gods at soccer, and they're beat your kids at soccer, but they're also gods of the classroom and of math and of vocab and Spanish, and and they're so good, they're going to be like the greatest doctors and lawyers ever in the history of mankind, and maybe one day they'll be the president. My dad thought I would be president one day because I was a U.S. born here, naturalized. Like, I wasn't naturalized, I was born here. So his dream for me was to become president of the United States. Is that what brings happiness? And like the Israelites who are faced with all of these competing thoughts, We are also living in a place with so many competing thoughts, but loving God is the same thing for us as it was back then for the Israelites. It's about having one and only one God, amen? This God who created us, the God of the rains, the God who gives us the commandments for our benefit, and the God who says all of these other things are lies. I know why I created you and for what purpose I created. So in verse 8, we're reminded to cling to him. Cling to the Lord your God. Cling to him. That word cling, uh, some commentators mention that it's the most adhesive verb found in the entire Old Testament. It's this idea of being completely connected and completely united to God. It's about total commitment, loyal devotion, deep affection. It's about being joined with God, his commandments, his purposes, and living life in that way. The opposite of clinging to God is what? It's found later in the very same passage. Verse 12. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you. Joshua is telling the Israelites, cling to God. Not to these other things. But he realizes they will cling to one or the other. And that's often our problem, too. It's not that we don't love God enough. It's that when we fail to cling to God, we often attach ourselves to all kinds of other things. And so church... Crossway, my brothers and sisters in Christ, from younger to older, I believe one of the most important things we can do with our lives is to love the Lord our God. By remembering his faithfulness, by remembering that he is the one who fights for us, that he is the one who gives us victory, by obeying and keeping the commandments that he gives to us for our own benefit, by having no other gods but him alone, by clinging on to him. We too are called to be a church and individuals that would love Christ, amen? In the New Testament, we're introduced to something that might be a little surprising to us. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This should have been what the Israelites went and did in Canaan. They should have been so full of love that the people who remained there should have left their false religions behind and seen the one true God as the God of love. And they should have been served by that community, reached out to by that community, and then evangelized for the sake of Christ and the gospel. It's what we should be doing too. This love our neighbor, what Pastor Steve introduced last week of inviting an unchurched person to Christ, this is loving God, you guys. It is the natural extension of being embraced by a God who loves us, of understanding such a God, and then leaving this room and this church understanding what our calling is to do in life. It's to take that message of love and to live it out, not for our benefit, but for his and for his gospel and for his sake so that the church of Jesus Christ would grow. Love our neighbor is something I really believe in. It's a chance for us to do exactly this. Those ministries, Future and Humanity, the ministry that they are doing, serve the people. Um, man, my brain is like... Uh, Failing here all of a sudden. I remember like two of them, right? Did I also, oh, Home on the Green Pastures. All right, we've got these ministries doing such incredible work. And we also want to introduce uh, a new one that we're starting a partnership with. It's an orphanage in Baja, um, uh, Mexico. It's about four and a half hours straight shot drive if you don't get stuck at the border from Brea, California. But they are doing some incredible things. I just want you to take a moment and look at the screen and really get introduced to Niños de Baja.